This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. I know I say it every week, but really, this week I have an extra special guest. Straight from the White House, Brian Deese is the director of the National Economic Council. He is essentially the chief economic advisor to the President of the United States. And we spent a lot of time discussing the President's new Council on Competition, which is a very, very big deal. It's going to be a big driver of policy uh, from the executive branch over the next four years. And we really got deep into the weeds. We talked about everything from farmers to employee contracts to net neutrality uh, to the right to repair your own um, products that you buy to, you know, everything, antitrust enforcement. It really was a policy wonk's delight. If you're remotely interested in economic competition, antitrust enforcement, employee contracts, well, you're going to find this to be absolutely fascinating. With no further ado, my conversation with the National Economic Council's director, Brian Deese. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week, I have an extra special guest. His name is Brian Deese. He is the director of the National Economic Council at the White House and essentially the chief economic advisor to President Biden. Previously, he was the global head of sustainable investing at BlackRock, and he was President Obama's senior advisor for climate and energy policy. Brian Deese, welcome back to Masters in Business. Thanks, Barry. It's great to be here. So so let's start with your role in this new administration. You are the 13th director of the National Economic Council. I think more, most people are more familiar with the Council of Economic Advisors. Tell us a little bit about this group, what it does, and, and how it differs from the CEA. So the, the National Economic Council was created by executive order in the early 1990s with the goal of having a White House entity that could coordinate economic policy on behalf of the president. The um, Some people think about the CEA, but I think the, the more natural analog is the National Security Council. So the National Security Council exists within the White House as a way of coordinating policy on national security and foreign policy issues. The National Economic Council was modeled to do the same for, uh, for both domestic and international economic uh, uh, priorities. So if you go back and you read the executive order that was created in early, the early 1990s, it holds pretty true to today. So what does that mean? Number one, have an uh, effective way to coordinate and aggregate the views of all of the uh, key economic policy principles, the Secretary of the Treasury, the Chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, our Commerce Secretary, our Labor Secretary, uh, and down the line. Create a common table around which we can debate and discuss and provide the President clear uh, policy recommendations and clear economic advice. And at the same time, have a, co- a coordinated way to take the direction from the president about his views and his uh, his direction on the economy, and drive that across uh, the broad uh, interagency of the executive branch. You, to your question about the Council of Economic Advisors, the Council of Economic Advisors is designed as a almost an internal think tank of uh, economists and uh, experts, many of whom come um, out of academia and spend one or two years at the council and provide a, an analytical base, an, ec- an economic base to think through issues, do uh, provide analysis, um, and really be a kind of th- a thought center. The National Economic Council is really designed to coordinate bringing those views to the table, but also um, uh, connecting them to the legislative and political realities that we're operating in to try to get the best outcomes possible in service of the president's goals. So so let's talk a little bit about uh, your boss, the president, and, and some of his goals. Last week, he signed an executive order to, quote, promote competition in the American economy. We've kind of become used to these sort of one-pager photo ops for executive orders, but that was not what this was. It, it's a 7,000-word, 72 bullet point document and and it's very serious policy initiative tell us what was the thinking behind rolling out 
this new policy this way? Well, I appreciate you counting words and actions, uh, because uh, we are, we're certainly focused uh, um, on that as well. We're really excited about this executive order, and it's based on a kind of very simple but important intuition, which is that having fair and open competition is a fundamental ingredient of a healthy capitalist economy. It's what actually drives better outcomes, lower prices, higher wages, more innovation, more economic growth. And so the core goal of this executive order is to reset across the entire executive branch a focus on where and in what ways can we encourage healthy competition in service of achieving those outcomes, lower prices, higher wages, more innovation. And what we've seen across time is that uh, our economy has gotten less competitive. Um, We have uh, a larger number of our industries that are now more concentrated than they were 20 or 30 years ago. Um, We've seen the rate of new business formation, particularly small business uh, formation, fall by almost 50% uh, since the 1970s. And if you look across industries, whether it's, you know, in in meatpacking or in broadband Internet, um, consumers' choices have been constrained. And we haven't seen the kind of the the follow-through benefit that at least has been argued by folks who say, you know, uh, more consolidation will actually generate lower prices for consumers. We haven't seen that either. In fact, if you aggregate up the impact of consolidation, to an American household in terms of prices and wages uh, and other attendant costs, you know, the best estimates are that it's costing about $5,000 a year for the typical household. So the goal of this executive order is to say, how can we start to get at that? And fundamentally, this is, this is, it's, it's, it, this is not about being sort of pro-business or anti-business. It's about being pro-competition. A lot of the ideas in this executive order are actually deregulatory in nature, trying to remove some barriers to entry that actually keep uh, workers uh, from more effectively moving and competing for jobs or new businesses to enter into new markets and grow and gain market share as a result. So that's the that's, that's the, the, at a high level, that's our goal. But you're right, um, we, we wanted to take a really serious effort to go agency by agency and look where, where are the challenges, what are the tools that we have, uh, and how could we advance the ball. It looks different in different agencies. There's a lot uh, um, to unpack here, but that's the goal at a high level. And, and I have to tell you, that's a shocking number. The lack of competition caused by industry consolidation and concentration Cost the average American family five thousand dollars a year. That that's a giant number. Yeah, and, and when you when you distill it down, you know that's that's a if, if if you you know. But I also would say embedded in that is a big opportunity, because if we can actually break down some of those barriers and we can encourage better competition, what that means is that we have a way of um, actually boosting economic outcomes for the typical family. Uh, in a significant way. But that sounds pretty esoteric, but you break it down into very practical things. Um, Something like hearing aids. Today, you need to get a prescription. You need to go to a doctor and get a prescription. You can't buy hearing aids over the counter. There's almost 50 million people in the country who have some form of hearing loss. Um, A lot of those are older, but a lot of younger people as well. Um, And that requirement operates, you know, as economists say, as a barrier to entry. And so what that means is that it just costs a lot more. It's also a hassle, but it costs a lot more to get hearing aids. So one of the things that this executive order uh, directs is to implement a rule to allow hearing aids to be bought over the counter. What that's going to do is it's going to make it easier for those 50 million people to get hearing aids more cheaply. But we also hope it'll spur innovation by reducing that barrier to entry. Now, new companies, new market entrants can come in and innovate in providing hearing aid products at a lower price point. And so that, that, that's just one example. If you think about how that you know, $5,000 aggregates up, that's one very practical example, but hits a lot of people in their daily life. Not only can you, not only can you, you, know, you have a little less hassle that you can just go to the uh, pharmacy and buy a pair of hearing aids, but overwhelmingly we know that re- removing a barrier like that will make it cheaper uh, and hopefully will generate more innovation and more opportunity for new business entrants to you know, succeed in it. Hmm. That, that's really interesting. Let, let's talk a little bit about part of this executive order, which is the formation of the President's Council on Competitiveness 
uh, beginning with the council membership. This is this is quite a list. It's the Secretary of Treasury, the Secretary of Defense, the Attorney General, Chair of the FTC, Chair of the Consumer Financial Protection Board, FCC, Agriculture, Commerce, on and on. It, it's practically the full cabinet. Why so broad a membership? What What's the thinking behind that? Well, you're making me realize I'm going to have to get a bigger uh, office to get everybody around the table, particularly now that we can um, uh, start to uh, do these uh, convenings uh, in person. Look, the idea of this was pretty simple, which is over the last several months, what we have done is we've run a process of going out to agencies and understanding from the agencies where the where their authority exists in terms of competition policy or antitrust um, and how they think it could be better deployed in service of encouraging competition that will be good for consumers uh, and families. And what we found in that process is there's the, the breadth of actions and the breadth, breadth of tools and authorities really runs across. Um, oftentimes, this conversation starts and centers around the core antitrust statutes uh, and the core antitrust enforcement agencies, the Department of Justice and the FTC. Their role is critical, and they operate ind- independently when it comes to enforcement matters. But in fact, the actual tools and authorities are much broader. So in USDA, for example, we just had the 100-year um, anniversary of the Packers and Stockyards Act, which is the antitrust statute that it, that applies to um, to food, uh, uh, food and agricultural uh, commodities, meatpacking, and others. Um, we have at the Department of Transportation authorities to look at competition uh, in the airline industry, in the railroad industry, in the shipping industry, um, and across the board. So uh, what we realized in putting this executive order together is that the actual coordination across these different parts of our government uh, is really important for two reasons. One, because it's important for the agencies to understand how when they're taking action to encourage competition in a particular segment of the market, like when HHS finalizes this rule to make hearing aids available over the counter. How does that fit into a broader economic strategy to encourage competition in uh, in the railroad industry or in the shipping industry? And the second is to make sure that we are um, we are effectively coordinating and not getting across purposes. So if, if, an, if one agency is moving out in a certain way, how to make sure that it's consistent and that, the, and that businesses and other stakeholders that are actually having to operate within these rules of the road have a cl- as clear as possible guidance from the executive branch um, on, uh, on what our policies and what our intentions are. So that's the goal of the council. It's been a long time uh, in American economic policy that we've really prioritized competition policy in this way, and we're going to need a structure to have that ongoing focus across time, and we're, we hope that, the, that this council will serve that purpose. So so let's stay with that structure a little bit. I mentioned all the members of, of this council. I didn't mention the chairperson. That would happen to be you. How big of a job is this going to be relative to your role as, as director of the National Economic Council? How large of a priority is this, and, and what do you hope to accomplish with it? Well, I think you saw from the president's speech and announcement last week the priority that he uh, and that we in his, as administration are putting on this effort, which is uh, very high, um, that we are obviously very focused on uh, the immediate economic challenges, um, the, the rescue plan, and the impact that that's had on the economy over the last couple of months, the effort we have with Congress right now working on an infrastructure package and on a uh, human infrastructure element as well. Um, but 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 equally um, in that category is this effort to try to lower prices for consumers, increase wages, generate more innovation by encouraging competition. So I would say that look, it's a big priority, and uh, part of why we wanted to move out early. Um, this is relatively early in administration to put out an executive order that is this this broad in terms of directives to different agencies was to make sure that we were getting going because some of these things um, appropriately will take some time. Uh, the rulemaking process, uh, you know, explicitly builds in time for notice and comment and engagement. Um, so we w- we know that these things will take some time, but we wanted to get the ball rolling, and as a result. 
our focus on this council and my role in, in, in trying to lead and coordinate that will be a big piece of business. Uh, but we're really excited about being out of the gate um, early and, uh, and, and aggressively here. And I think what you're going to see, hopefully, is that for a lot of end, uh, uh, end recipients, typical families, uh, businesses, this is going to be a real, welcome, uh, a real welcome opportunity because whether you're a small family farmer who has been struggling under the sense that you know costs keep going up and your choices are, are going down because you keep seeing consolidation in a market, or you're just you know uh, somebody who is looking for the best job possible and realizing that there are restrictions on you know moving from job to job that you didn't even know existed. These are the kinds of things that can help people in their daily lives. But if we're going to get to helping in at that end point, we really got to be organized and coordinated uh, as a federal government. So we got to you know it's going to be a big piece of business, but one that we're very excited about. So we're going to drill down into some of the specifics on a sector by sector basis. But before we get that granular. I want to just discuss briefly the genesis of this. Your White House colleague, Tim Wu, along with a bunch of others, published a, a, a large research paper back in November, right, right after the election. And their analysis identified that pretty much since the Microsoft antitrust case in the 1990s, the U.S. has kind of given up on um, antitrust enforcement, and the result has been huge industry consolidation, reduction of competition, increased pricing power, and higher costs to consumers. So that leads to the question, what happened to antitrust enforcement in the United States? Well, it's, it's, it's an important question, and, and, and also one that I think is helpful to put in um, historic context, because if you look at the arc of competition policy and antitrust enforcement in the U.S., it really, you do see ebbs and flows. You know, going back as far as the passage of the Sherman Antitrust Act in the 1890s, right, that was a reaction to the both the political corruption, but also the, the sort of behavior that of monopolies in the in the in the Gilded Age, and laid the groundwork for, of course, you know, uh, President Teddy Roosevelt becoming famous in in, in trust busting and uh, and and the activities in the early 1900s. Um, and then you, you saw another acceleration on the back end of the um, uh, in the in, in the 1930s on the back end of the First World War, um, and then coming out of the Second World War with with FDR um, reflecting that as well. You then saw a different uh, a different approach that emerged in the 1970s and a new school of thought that was very was was very narrowing of the view of competition policy. Um, and that led to a multi-decade uh, um, approach of, as you say, limiting enforcement uh, of antitrust and a view that kind of all things equal, uh, letting uh, consolidation occur would generate economic benefits. And so therefore, at the margin, we should be sort of accommodating of consolidation unless there was, you know, radically clear that it was bad for um, uh, bad for uh, consumers or bad for prices, and so we've seen the implications of that. And, and to your point, we've seen over the last couple of decades the number of annual mergers has increased by five or sixfold, um, and we have seen in 75% of industries the you know measure of industry consolidation has uh, increased significantly over the last uh, 20 years. And we haven't seen the attendant benefit in terms of uh, lower prices um, or or more innovation in the economy. And so, you know, over the last five years or so, there's been a growing body of economic research to try to identify the fact, the harms that have come from this consolidation. Uh, and uh, that work um, started. Some of that work started and was really put on the map at the end of the Obama administration, um, including by um, uh, Tim Wu, who you mentioned, uh, Jason Furman, others of my former colleagues, who really started to pinpoint this uh, decline in antitrust enforcement and the decline in focus on competition policy as one thing that has added to the stagnancy of small business formation, the inequality that we have seen. Um, and 
in the academic realm, we've seen that that work only accelerate over the course of the last five years. And so certainly the executive order here and the actions and the work that is embedded here is really building on that framework and building on the findings that have come out um, over that. And we certainly we, we do view it in historic perspective of now trying to really shift back to a focus on prioritizing um, enforcement of antitrust statutes, a focus on competition, and a focus on the end outcome and the end benefit to um, the end consumer and worker. And and for those people who may not be familiar with Tim Wu, not only is he the person who coined the phrase net neutrality, he is the author of a couple of books, The Curse of Bigness, Antitrust in the New Gilded Age, as well as The Master Switch, where he describes how eventually these information systems, they become consolidated, they become closed and less and less competitive until some disruptive innovation comes along and my sense is this council is trying to encourage less of that concentration and more of the disruptive innovation. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, and Tim is Tim works for um, us here at the NEC and has been a thought leader on these issues uh, for some time. And you've characterized you know accurately the one of the, the key objectives uh, of this council is to try to get toward how we can encourage that type of innovation. Um, And one thing I would say is that this really is something that I think we've increasingly seen cuts across traditional um, lines or dividing lines in economic thought, and it cuts across traditional political dividing lines, too. I mean, some of the things we're talking about here are really about getting rid of regulations that stand in the way of that kind of innovation. You know, one of the examples that's in the executive order is around, is in the, um, is in uh, beer and wine, the, uh, the, uh, the, the alcohol market. And you've got some uh, incumbent rules on bottle size and bottle labeling that when you really unpack them and say, well, wh- wh- why is it that, you know, to operate in a market, you have to meet certain bottle size requirements because maybe you've got an idea to bring a product to market that just looks different and that's going to be your, you know, that's going to be your branding edge. Well, you know, when you unpack and, and, and look at the reason why those regulations exist, you know, some of them are because they're just protecting incumbents. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the similar to a number of these occupational licensing requirements where you have requirements to get a license to be um, to braid hair or to cut hair um, or, you know, to do all manner of, of jobs, particularly at the, um, in different states where – you know, if you if you're moving from one state to another, um, you've got to go through a whole process of getting a new license. Um, and you know, look, having licensing requirements for uh, you know for jobs that require you know that are that, that where there's safety or there's other things involved obviously make a lot of sense. But in a lot of cases, when you unpack it, rules like that are have been put in place to. Uh, favor incumbents and make it harder for new entrants to get into the market. And so we're really, you know, we we think there's real opportunity both to be disruptive in terms of the economic thought, but also disruptive in terms of some of the embedded political realities of this. We've had, you know, a lot of these items have strange bedfellows in terms of the support behind them, and that's part of what's exciting about it for us as well. Right. Clearly a lot of these licensing rules are anti-competitive. Um, before we dig down and get granular into the individual sectors, I, I have one last broad overview question, and it's on antitrust enforcement. There has been a deeply embedded sort of laissez-faire doctrine at, at both the Department of Justice and the FTC. Obviously, Lena Khan and Merrick Garland represent a break from that philosophy, but How do you turn around two decades of, I was going to say, lax enforcement, but it's really a a skepticism about antitrust law? How do you reverse that? Well, I think you start uh, by doing what we did in the executive order, which is to articulate that it is the policy of the executive branch to vigorously enforce our antitrust laws. And more than that, um, to enforce them in the context of a um, uh, an economic policy that views increasing competition as a key way of improving lives and economic outcomes for the American people. So part of it is you start by 
articulating a clear economic strategy and economic philosophy behind why it is that we need greater um, and more vigorous enforcement of our antitrust statutes. And, you know, some of the some of the, the work that uh, in the 1970s and early 80s that led to this kind of multi-decade effort to try to undermine enforcement of antitrust started from a, articulating a, a similarly articulating a philosophy, but a philosophy to very different ends. So that's you know one important step is I think what we're trying to do is to articulate clearly the policy of the government. The second, I do want to be clear, is that the actual enforcement um, appropriately and necessarily operates independently, independently at the Department of Justice uh, and the FTC. But I think getting high-quality personnel in that will do that effectively um, is, a, uh, is a is a second in, in important step. And so we're you know we're we're moving on that uh, front as well. And then you know we we do I you know we do have an issue, uh, which is that ultimately these thing, the the antitrust doctrine gets um, gets developed in the context of the judicial branch and and uh, and challenges to decisions and we've seen that obviously over the course of decades as well and so you know there are also some places where uh, we may need to change the law we may need to clarify or strengthen uh, the um, the antitrust authorities and there's bipartisan work in Congress that's going on on that front right now, particularly as it relates to the tech uh, industry. And so that's something that we are engaged on as well. But we, we feel quite good about the fact that even within the existing authorities that uh, we have across the federal government, we can make a lot of progress, and that's where we're focused for the time being. All right, so let's dive into some of these sectors. And, and really, this executive order covers everything from healthcare to financial products to net neutrality, data, farmers, labeling. Let's start with labor and employee contracts. I recall a couple of years ago, um, a bunch of reports sort of surfaced about various tech companies, Google, Apple, Facebook, that had these anti-poaching agreements. They wouldn't hire each other's senior personnel, obviously illegal and a restrictive um, covenants amongst them. But, But less obvious are some of the basic restrictive contracts, non-competes, non-disclosures, other onerous clauses uh, that are common in Silicon Valley but have spread out to the rest of the country, what can this council do to allow greater competition for uh, those sort of employees who want to switch jobs? Yeah, so this is an incredibly important issue. Um, you know, our, our our labor market will work more effectively when workers are competing for jobs, but also employers are competing for workers. And when we have you know fewer frictions and better matching between the, uh, workers and the jobs that they will be most successful in, we get better you know outcomes overall. Um, but to your point, we've got some real frictions, and we have real opportunities to address them. So this uh, executive order and the work through the council, we're going to go at three of those. The first is what you refer to as non-compete agreements, and it's striking. Today, about one in three employers require that an employee will sign a non-compete agreement. So you're talking about about 60 million people in the workforce. Um, and it's not just, uh, as you say, in Silicon Valley, and it's not just in uh, those circumstances where there's an obvious uh, or, or clear um, competitive reason why you need it. So, you know, the president, joking, not jokingly, but, you know, illustratively pointed out to the fact that, you know, you're, if you're the scientist who owns the secret recipe for Coke, uh, you know, you, you may need to sign a non-compete to not just go to Pepsi and give away that trade secret, right? Um, when the, um, and so, so clearly these, these you know, non-competes operate as a, as, a, as a legitimate tool. But when you got to 60 million people and one in three employers, this goes much broader. Construction workers, hotel workers, um, you know, you work in a restaurant and hospitality, fast food, um, and also for, for low-wage jobs, entry-level jobs, not just more senior jobs where you'd be uh, access to more sensitive information. And so, you know, this, the, uh, the executive order is operating from a pretty basic principle that if, particularly if you're operating in those sectors and someone offers you a better job, you should be able to take it. 
And if your existing employer wants you to stay, they should compete for your talent. Um, and so uh, the order uh, um, uh, is, uh, is, is directing the, F- the FTC to look at either modifying or banning non-compete clauses. Uh, so that's number one. Um, the second is what I mentioned earlier, which is about the licenses required to operate in a job. So again, about one in three jobs, about 30% of jobs in the U.S. also require a license. And so that spans the uh, you know that, that spans the horizon. Obviously, you know you need a pilot's license to be uh, to to operate an aircraft, but you also need a license to be an accountant, an interior decorator, a hairdresser, and importantly, one in three today need that. That was five percent in the 1950s. Wow. So we've seen a significant increase in the number of jobs that require a license. And so likewise, this order goes at saying in those cases where unnecessary licensing is actually reducing mobility, um, then we should put limits or restrictions on them. And one point I would highlight here is, you know, some some people really need to be mobile. Uh, that You know, it's part of how our economy works. You take uh, military families, for example. You have to move every couple of years in order to uh, do your job. Well, if you're a spouse of a if you have a you know a, a, a one 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 member of a partnership is is in the military and moving, the other person works in a job where state by state you have dis- different licensing requirements. Then you know every time they move, that could be three six months of uh, you know friction in terms of getting into the labor market and finding a job. The last thing we're focused on here is about wage data, and one of the things that that is true today is that employers can share detailed wage data between employers without having to share it to employees. And again, this is just what the concern that is raised is that if, you know, if employers can share wage data without sharing it to employees, then it makes it easier for them to, um, to you know, either explicitly collude or just implicitly um, reduce, uh, you know, competition and not have to compete as vigorously on, on, on wages. And so, and you could end up, you know, putting downward pressure on wages. So in all three of those areas, we think we can make some uh, uh, progress by either eliminating or restricting um, uh, non-competes, licensing, uh, you know, wage data sharing. And so that's, that's our real focus in the labor market. And we think if we can make some progress on all three, what you end up with, again, is a more competitive labor market, actually reducing regulation and making it easier for people to move from job to job. So, so I get the idea of leveling the playing field, uh, increasing mobility. It would be great if states uh, had reciprocity on various licensing. Um, but a lot of these non-competes and a lot of these employee contracts are governed by state law. What is the authority for the FTC or, or the federal government to come in and say, hey, this, uh, this very weak permissive state statute allowing these restrictive employee agreements is going to be bypassed by the federal government. From whence does that authority come? So in a lot of these cases, uh, these are employer contracts or they are employer agreements. Uh, and even in cases where uh, states have um, the states have authorities, uh, the you know employers are making uh, contracts where there is a uh, a federal nexus and and that that extends to FTC authorities to uh, to limit or ban uh, anti-competitive practices. So uh, the FTC does have um, pretty broad authority in these areas, even in cases where uh, the you know the the a state rule or a state requirement um, is comes into play. So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do what we can at the federal level. We think we have um, uh, some real scope here. Obviously, the FTC uh, will sort through that um, and and make its determinations, uh, ultimate determinations on how to use that authority uh, independently. Uh, but also, you know, part of what we are doing and part of what we're trying to encourage here is a consideration of this at the state level as well. So one of the things we will be doing is reaching out and engaging with. Um, uh, state and uh, and municipal actors as well, because you know one of the things that we found is that there's appetite to try to address this at the state level uh, too. So you know where where the ultimate authority actually is not um, a federal authority, we also have a you know certain ability to convene and use the bully pulpit to encourage action at the state as well.
So let's switch over to uh, real estate. Uh, many people may not be aware that the United States has a much higher real estate transaction commission than many other countries. The prior administration had cut a bit of a sweetheart deal with the National Association of Realtors. You guys, this administration put the NAR on notice that that deal was off the table and you want to do something about how they're maintaining high real estate prices. Tell us about what the Competitive Council can do about excessive real estate commissions. Well, look. I think it's a very, you know, it's 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 a it's a very similar uh, uh, dynamic, uh, but again, you know, uh, operating in in a different uh, industry, which is, you know, can we bring more transparency, uh, and can we also bring uh, more uh, more competition into uh, into a market? With the with the goal of trying to ultimately identify what's good for the uh, you know for for the for the, for the end uh, consumer. So, you know the uh, the 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 Justice Department uh, did um, uh, did take take action uh, independently to try to um, uh, to try to uh, take another look uh, at this question. Um, and you know the, uh, the the real question at issue here is uh, whether the the sort of uh, the structure of of commissions is going to advance competition, encourage more competition with better outcomes for uh, for consumers. And this question of whether you have very high and also uniform commissions across an industry raises the question of whether that's actually, you know, com- that's that is the result of a competitive uh, outcome, or whether that is the result of, of a lack of competition. So ultimately, you know, this is a, a um, this falls in the category of an enforcement action that the Department of Justice will operate independently. But I think lifting up what you see is again an important question being asked, right? Which is that um, if you if you have a, if you have histor- if you have if you have high commissions. Um, and uniform commissions, um, it is, you know, it's appropriate to ask that question of, is that the result of a competitive outcome or is that the result of lack of competition? And, you know, I anticipate that that's what we'll, that's what we'll see. And hopefully that's, that's the outcome that we will, uh, that we'll, we'll arrive, we'll arrive at, but ultimately the Department of Justice will, will independently navigate that, um, consistent with their enforcement role. And, and let's stay with real estate a minute. One of the things that I was shocked by in the executive order and, and surprised to learn, very often uh, landlords of rental buildings or even condos sell exclusive rights to the building to a cable company, meaning no competition between fiber optic, cable, satellite for customers. I, I had no idea this existed. I can't imagine it's legal. It has to be anti-competitive and make things so much more expensive for consumers, tell us a little bit about what you want to do with that. I'm glad you picked up on that, and it, it goes to a broader issue, which is how do we actually achieve the goal of affordable, high-speed internet access for all Americans? Um, and that's a big goal, um, and there's big challenges for us uh, as a country to get to there. But part of getting there is actually not only creating um, uh, access, you know, Thirty percent of people in rural America live in a jurisdiction where there isn't even access to high-speed internet, but also creating competition where the fiber has been laid and the um, uh, and the the access is there, but it's unaffordable, and unaffordable in part because there isn't sufficient uh, competition. So you know a, a a really strikingly high share of Americans live in jurisdictions where there is only one. Uh, one reliable broadband provider. And this gets to your point. Many people live in circumstances where they are themselves restricted to only accessing one uh, one internet provider. Um, and uh, and yeah, it's um, it's not it's not as well known, but it is the case that in some cases you have these agreements, these landlord provider agreements, where um, just by dint of deciding to live in a particular building, you you then lose access to a competitive market uh, for uh, for broadband services. I would say you know anecdotally. One of the things that I think 
you hear a lot is that I mean is that people can't really understand what it, why it, what it, what they're paying for and why they're paying uh, with respect to um, uh, internet providers. Um, and I think that you know the opportunity here is to say if we can create more competition, this is a place where uh, ultimately consumers uh, will end up. Uh, with uh, with uh, with more options, and that they'll drive lower prices uh, and better uh, and better outcomes uh, as well. So uh, that particular issue of landlords and uh, tenants is a is a particularly evocative um, example of the challenge, as you've noted. But the challenge is actually much uh, broader than that, which is at the end of the day, every American, you know, by, by high speed internet. Today is like electricity was uh, a, a hundred years ago. It is the power by which you interact with the 21st century economy. And if you don't have access to high-speed internet, you really can't be a full participant in the nation's economy today. Um, and we need to make sure that everybody has that access. Some of that is, you know, about building out um, more fiber and building out more um, actual access. But encouraging healthy competition in this uh, sector is a big part of it as well. And, and something else I found in the executive order that I never heard of and kind of blew my mind, pay to delay, big farmer paying generic drug companies to not make cheaper generics. How on earth could that be allowed? <laughs> well, look, you know, uh, <laughs> there is a we, – we have a – uh, we have a set of challenges uh, in the the market for uh, prescription drugs, um, and uh, and and that I think is uh, is is well known. Um, and you know, there's a there's a obviously there is a legitimate issue here about um, the upfront investment needed to innovate and identify prescription uh, and and the the. Um, innovations that go into prescription drugs and making sure that companies can recoup those. But there's a lot of elements of how that market operates that go well beyond that and actually end up just driving up prices uh, for uh, consumers. Um, and you're, you're raising uh, one of them, which is, you know, there is one, one of the strategies that manufacturers have used uh, in the past is if you're the um, if you're the brand uh, name drug manufacturer, you encourage generic uh, manufacturers to uh, to stay out of the market by you know providing them uh, incentive payments, and uh, and that you know at the end of the day, there's no there's a, a there's two two negative impacts to the economy. One is less innovation. Um, but the other is higher prices uh, for uh, and consumers, and we see in the, the evidence of these pay for delay uh, 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 schemes that it it produces both of those outcomes: less innovation uh, and higher prices. So that's the kind of thing that we we want to uh, work to try to uh, reduce uh, or eliminate, and also just encourage more competition uh, in the market uh, for uh, generics as well. So the other, you know, an, a, another element that. Um, that the executive order uh, directs is for uh, the FDA to work with states to allow them to import prescription drugs from uh, Canada, um, consistent with safety standards. And this is, again, something that a number of states have uh, expressed an interest in doing um, because it would create more competition and lower prices uh, for their um, uh, their consu for consumers in their states. And the federal government has been operated, you know, traditionally as a barrier to that. And we want to change that. We want to uh, have the federal government, again, consistent with safety standards, encouraging that kind of uh, state action uh, to increase competition um, in, the, in the prescription drug market as well. It, it's always seemed weird to me that U.S. consumers are the ones subsidizing drugs for the rest of the world that U.S. consumers were paying so much more. It's not just Canada, but it's throughout Europe and, and the U.K. It just seems so weird to me that Americans pay a much higher price for the same exact drug, including those made by American drug companies. Yeah, look, it's striking, right? If you're a U.S. consumer, you are 
likely to pay two and a half times as much for the same prescription drug than your international counterpart. Now, obviously, it's sort of, you know, it varies from country to country, but on average, that's, uh, that's the uh, reality. And we think that there's a lot that could be done, common sense things that could be done, you know, banning a pay-for-delay arrangement that uh, reduces innovation, drives up prices, letting states uh, import safely uh, from Canada. There's also some steps we're going to need to work with Congress to do as well, though, and that's one of the things that we're working on uh, right now, in fact, is to try to finally give uh, Medicare the ability to negotiate um, uh, as the largest bulk purchaser of prescription drugs um, in the market, um, give Medicare the ability to use that uh, market position to actually negotiate for lower prices, um, which would not only increase, reduce prices for um, the uh, end participants in Medicare, but also would have a downward pressure on prices across the industry because Medicare is the sort of the um, the benchmark rate uh, in uh, in many cases. So, you know, we just you're right. It's the kind of thing that it's also the kind of thing that so many Americans know and uh, understand and actually feel in their daily lives. And they know that it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Why is it that we're paying so much? Uh, but at the same time, it's hard to pinpoint, well, how can we fix that? We're trying to break that down and say there's some really concrete, practical things we could do. And we and in doing so, uh, we're this is this is about government eliminating rules, eliminating regulations that just don't make a lot of sense. Um, using market power to actually bargain for uh, better uh, prices. These are the kinds of things that we think make a lot of sense and and kind of make intuitive sense to the American people as well. I, I want to talk about big tech and. Net neutrality, but before I move to that space, which I know is going to take a lot of time, I, I have to talk about farmers a little bit. First, why can't farmers repair their own tractors? This is the most insane thing I can imagine. As someone who likes to tinker and do some of my own repairs, if you're, if you're a farmer, why can't you take your John Deere tractor and fix it yourself when it breaks? <laughs> Well, you know, look, I, it's, it's you're 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 keying in on a lot of these pragmatic things that we're very focused on as well. It's hard to it's hard to prosecute an argument why that makes a lot of sense. Um, and part of the reason why we are where we are is because of a set of rules that have been put in place that end up favoring the incumbent. Right? If you are the incumbent and you uh, sell a tractor and you restrict uh, the uh, where somebody can get it fixed, then it, you know, makes it easier for you to keep, you know, to maintain control of the customer base. Um, but the question that you're appropriately raising is what, what's the what's the broader consumer benefit and what's the broader rationale behind it? Um, and we think that that's the kind of thing that we need to, uh, you know, we need to fundamentally uh, rethink. You know, it's, it's true across the... Um, uh, across the economy, there are these sort of right to repair uh, provisions that, again, are rules in place that we need to take a hard look at to make sure that if they're in place, they are actually serving some important safety benefit, uh, safety uh, rationale or otherwise, and not just there to uh, to uh, favor or or you know or keep out new entrants into a market. In that particular case, we're quite excited about the idea that, you know, if you open up uh, and give, um, and that's why we encourage the FTC to look at saying, give, you know, give farmers the right to repair their own equipment how they like without having to rely on any particular expensive uh, uh, manufacturer. And in doing so, that will also, you know, again, it's the same thing, you know, that should make life easier for farmers. Uh, it should make, uh, it should bring prices down, but also encourage innovation. Because if you're, you know, a, uh, if you're a repair shop, an independent repair shop that works on uh, some other, you know, small, um, uh, small mechanical issues, and that you open this up, well, then you have a market to enter into. You can learn how to fix tractors uh, uh, efficiently and cheaply, and then you can grow grow as a result. Um, and I, I think that that's a point I would I would emphasize. Of this is not about keeping businesses in the U.S. from growing, gaining market share, um, and doing what businesses need to do to be successful, which is enter new markets, innovate, grow, and as a result, get bigger. <laughs> that's, that's part of the goal of uh, effective uh, 
uh, capitalism. This is not about stifling that. It's more about looking at those areas where a rule actually keeps incumbents from being able to enter into the market and really ask the hard question of, is there a legitimate economic rationale to that other than rents uh, or other than stifling competition? Right. And it's not just factors. It's it's cell phones. Uh, my, my Apple iPhone is dying and I can either swap the battery out and then cause all sorts of problems because I'm not allowed to change a battery, or I could go buy a brand new phone. Um, but bef- again, before we get to technology, let me stay with farmers. There are some pretty surprising restrictions on seeds, including liability uh, for some farmers for seeds they never even used. What's going on in that area? I've read some pretty horrible stories about farmers being sued by by big ag for lack of a better phrase what can be done to allow farmers to take more control of their own crops of their own planting and their own harvesting well this is a really good um, example of when you see consolidation in a market that should raise a question a legitimate question of is that consolidation um, uh, uh, encouraging healthy competition or consistent with healthy competition, or is it actually um, stifling that uh, competition? So if you look at the market uh, for agricultural inputs, um, uh, seeds, uh, feed, fertilizer, we've seen significant consolidation uh, over the last uh, few decades. So to your point on seeds, um, you know, uh, to a you know to a first approximation, about four companies control most of the world market at this point, and we've seen prices go up uh, very significantly across time. And so, what that does, what, what we've seen in that market is that the increase in price and the reduction in competition also puts those providers in a position where they can put increased demands because the the end farmer, the small farmer, just doesn't have choice to get there, to source their seeds from any other producer. So they can limit options. They can, you know, they can require the use of those in certain ways that then can create liability for um, the end uh, producer. What it also does is it means that the end farmer ends up getting less and less of the total uh, aggregate benefit of the output that they grow. So, you know, when you're using a seed to grow a, a, a food commodity, at the end of the day, the you know farmers, as we've seen this consolidation increase, they've gotten less and less of the total aggregate economic benefit of um, of, of of that output, and so you've got you know more consolidation, prices increasing, and less of the benefit of each dollar uh, being uh, garnered for that end output food product declining for for decades. And I think this is an interesting place with respect to this executive order where the um, we've gotten an enormous amount of outpouring from agricultural constituencies, the small farmers uh, organizations in states. Uh, we've seen, you know, everybody from uh, from Senator Tester in Montana to Senator Grassley uh, in Iowa saying, um, this is what we need to try to take on consolidation and incur- get better competition, get competition back into markets markets for seed, into markets for feed, into markets for fertilizer, to give the smaller farmers a real fighting chance, um, and to give them more of the share of the economic output of the product they're producing. And, and, and ultimately, if there's more competition, not only does it benefit farmers, I have to assume in this current inflation-concerned environment, this can help drive food prices down over the long haul. I think it's a way to, to, to create a stable uh, and and better price outcomes uh, over over the longer term. Yeah, because you see, you know, that prices when prices for input goods are going up, right. that was true in in agriculture markets prior to the pandemic, um, and certainly it remains a concern now. This is a this these types of steps we hope will actually put downward pressure on uh, uh, on those markets over the longer term. All right, so let's talk about everybody's favorite segment, big tech. Uh, I read NYU professor Scott Galloway's book, The Four. I think it came out in 2016 or 2017. Uh, And the basic premise is the biggest companies in technology have become very large, very powerful. They buy up uh, 
nascent competitors before they're even out of the womb and they just have incredible market power. What can be done about this concentrated uh, strength of these giant trillion-dollar technology companies? Well, I would start by saying, look, the um, our technology sector and our tech companies uh, are a reflection of the unparalleled innovation of the American economy um, and reflect um, and, and, and drive and have generated a lot of the innovation and benefits that Americans across the board, you and I, benefit from on a daily basis. And so um, that's, 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 that's important and important as a starting point. And at the same time, uh, there are really significant problems with uh, concentration and with any competitive behavior in uh, in the tech sector, and that's uh, what we're really trying to focus on in this executive order uh, and across across the board. And it's it's not you know this conversation can often be sort of very um, uh, can, can drive to sort of inchoate. There's just something there's something inherently wrong with big tech, right? And we're trying to break that down and say let's try to identify those areas where we we have real questions about dominant, you know, uh, tech platforms and where they may be undermining competition or, uh, um, you know, reducing uh, competition. So that's the, that's, that's, that's our focus. So, you know, for example, we're, you know, the, the, the executive order is encouraging the FTC to adopt new rules on, how tech platforms can gather and collect data and use that data in places like retail marketplaces on their own platforms, um, uh, and uh, and that's you know that's that's a that's a more concrete example, but one that I think that you know a lot of end consumers have um, uh, have observed uh, or have interacted with um, in their in their daily life. That's clearly a place where we need to take a very hard look and apply scrutiny. Another is with respect to mergers, right? And this is a place where clearly um, we uh, we need to increase the focus. Um, again, the antitrust, the actual enforcement, uh, we will leave to the Department of Justice and we will leave to the FTC. But as a matter of policy, we have to focus in particular, in a particular focus on the acquisition of competitors and the impact of those in the tech sector on platforms that then are dominant enough that they can use mergers to just basically to squeeze out uh, competition um, uh, by competitors in the first place. And at the end of the day, you know, we want to create a such circumstance where the next generation of great tech companies are in the United States come from the innovative capacity of this economy, which is unparalleled, um, and continue to drive innovation. But we think that these types of um, reforms are actually necessary to do that so that we don't end up stifling competition and, uh, and losing that kind of next generation of innovation. You, you mentioned encouraging the FTC to establish rules on surveillance. Um, there are also some rules on accumulation of data. It seems that other countries like Europe or even the state of California have very robust data privacy laws. Does that require separate legislation or can that be done through this council and through the FTC? Well, I think there's a lot that we can do. Uh, there, there's 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 a lot that we can do and a lot that, that um, the – uh, the FTC and the Department of Justice can uh, can do and can move on their own, and I think that um, we'll see that uh, with respect to. I anticipate we'll see that with respect to data. Um, we'll see that with respect to uh, scrutiny on mergers, uh, and also I think on some more specific behaviors uh, and methods uh, that uh, that we've seen emerge uh, in the industry and that we have. Um, uh, uh, c c called out, you know, in the um, in the uh, executive order, particularly around competing on your own platform, right? That um, and so using the you know, the platform dominance to then compete with others on your platform, yeah, it's a place where is sort of intuitively you, you really need to apply scrutiny to activities uh, in that space. 
At the same time, you, you are right that there's both at the state level um, and at the federal level as well, there's an active conversation about where um, additional authority will be necessary. And I, I mentioned earlier, you know, there's an, there's an active, robust conversation going on in the U.S. Congress on that front, bipartisan in nature. So I anticipate that we're going to uh, see more activity on the legislative front, which reflects the fact that um, we probably are going to need more authority as well. Hmm. Makes makes a lot of sense. And, and it's kind of an interesting coalition of people criticizing the market power of big tech. Conservatives are looking at it from one perspective. Progressives are looking at it from a very different perspective. Is there is there a coalition to be had to actually get some legislation passed on this? Well, I, I think that here's what I'd say. We've seen bipartisan activity Principally, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen that in the House, uh, and we're encouraged by that work because I think that it is it is raising appropriately uh, the authorities necessary to go at um, some of these concerns that we've talked about. Um, there's similar work going on in the Senate, and I anticipate that that you know will will progress. It's always one of the things I found uh, in this job is it's both not a good idea um, and very difficult to really predict with accuracy exactly what the U.S. Congress uh, is going to do. Um, so I won't I won't try to do that in this context, but I would say that if you look at the work that's going on, there's a lot of thought behind it. There's been a lot of energy uh, building on this issue across time. It is bipartisan in nature, and so it's compli- It's a complicated substantive issue. And it's complicated politically as well, but certainly we are encouraged uh, by it uh, because I think, you know, at the end of the day, the president does believe that we, we really need to focus on these sets of issues. We cannot just allow the status quo to continue. The actions that we are taking in the executive order are a big step in that direction, uh, but we're going to keep working with Congress, and hopefully we will we'll be able to progress on the legislative front as well. And, and I have to just quickly ask you about net neutrality. That was undone by the last administration. Uh, what are the plans in this administration? Are we going to restore net neutrality so that certain consolidated companies, they might own the pipes and the content, can't give their own materials preference over uh, the rest of the Internet? So the the president's view on this is pretty clear. Uh, he's held it since the campaign uh, that uh, he believes that net neutrality rules are necessary and appropriate, that the steps that the prior administration um, took were in the wrong direction, and then and in the executive order encourages the FCC to ret- uh, to restore those rules, um, and so that's where we are, um, and we're we, that's one of the key steps that was embedded in this executive order. Um, the FCC operates independently, but the president's got a clear view and uh, is encouraging the FCC to take action on that front. And I see I only have time for one more question, so let me make it a big one. Let's look back from four years in the future at at this council. How will you be able to tell if this council was successful or not? At the end of the day, this is about improving economic outcomes for people, whether that's in higher wages, lower prices, or the impact of more innovation in their lives and in the communities in which they operate. So at core, if we look back, success will be because across the economy, lots of people have been able to improve their economic prospects in practical ways. People will be able to go into a pharmacy and buy hearing aids over the counter. Cheaper, more innovative, better outcome. People will have more opportunity to go across the street to the employer uh, that might want to offer them a better job and get employers to compete for their talent rather than being locked uh, into a non-compete. Prescription drug prices will be lower than they otherwise will be. People will have more options to get high-speed Internet, even if they live in an apartment building with a particular landlord. And, you know, people will be able to do other things that we we haven't touched on in this conversation, like move financial institutions, uh, shift their data from bank one to bank two without having to go through a complicated process. All of these things just go to very practical frictions in a person's life. But at the end of the day, success will be we have 
made those frictions uh, easier and gone at that $5,000 in the aggregate that is dragging on the typical family's uh, economic outcomes and started to reverse that. So that's that's how we think about success. Um, uh, it will require structure and process and a kind of focus on executing across these exe- these 72 executive actions. But that's our North Star. Brian, this has just been absolutely enlightening. Thank you again for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Brian Deese. He is the director of the National Economic Council and the new chairperson of the President's Council on Economic Competitiveness. If you enjoy this conversation, check out any of our prior 400 such interviews. You can find those wherever you feed your podcast fix, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, etc. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can sign up for my daily reading list at ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column at bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together each week. Tim Harrow is my audio engineer. Atika Valbron is my project manager. Paris Walt is my producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.